0: Welcome back to the SED 938 podcast, a ministry of baptism and missions designed to encourage, equip, and inspire the next generation of missionary servants and the churches who will send them. I'm your host, Steve Anderson, Administrator for North American Ministries with baptism and missions, and I'm joined today once more by President Emeritus Dr. Gary Anderson. Once more, also happens to be my dad. Welcome, Dad.
1: Thanks. Nice to be back with you.
0: So these moment of his moment in history episodes have been uh, getting a lot of really good feedback from our listeners. We appreciate that. If you want to send us a note or comment or question on today's or any other episode, you can always reach us at send nine thirty eight at bmm.org. dot org. So you've you've shared with us a little bit of history from a personal perspective on some of the experiences early in your administration, some really world shaking events that dynamically changed the way that ministry continues to be done today in some parts of the world, and I uh, understand your interest today in, is in talking to us about some of the early efforts in translation
1: and education. So, Yeah, I'd like to highlight the involvement of Baptist in missions in the distribution of the Word of God around the world. Back in 1920, when the mission was founded, it was established by a man who had, in fact, distinguished himself as a, a preacher and an evangelist faithful, uh, presentation of the word with precision and integrity. And God had blessed his efforts. He was a very, very fruitful ministry under William Haas, who in 1920 launched the mission. It was only about 15 years from the mission's inception that the first formal Bible translation effort was undertaken, although that had been, in fact, a part of of William Haas's ministry from the very first. Well, he's he's the guy that, that codified the Sango language. Yes, he did. It was a trade language. Uh, I would refer to it as anchored in French, but uh, a lot of, of tribal language, multiple tribal languages, as far as I can tell, mixed into it. But it was a trade language, which meant that people could communicate across language barriers with it. It was a somewhat common language for the part of French Equatorial Africa where he settled for ministry that became Central African Republic to the south, and what had originally been the District of Chad in FEA, eventually became the nation of Chad. So two nations: the Central African Republic and Chad. Originally a part of that territory that that Haas took the gospel to, really one of the first, in many instances, the the first Westerner into that area, and certainly the first one preaching the gospel, but the Sango language to him was an opportunity to do more than could be done with the official, the, the legal language, which was French because the area was controlled by France. So it was Haas himself who established an, orth, an orthography, a way to actually write the language. And then he, he created an alphabet to a dictionary, the first primer. So the development of the language into a written form was credited to Haas. And undoubtedly it was his passion for getting the language into, excuse me, the getting the scripture into language that was readily understood. It's his passion for that. I'm sure that inspired those earliest missionaries, some who had been recruited by Haas, uh, specifically the Rosenau family. They became a part of the first Language Translation Committee. And in the early days, MidMission shared that role with missionaries who occupied the western end of Central Africa. That would have been Grace Brethren missionaries. And they had arrived, representatives of their group had arrived about the same time Haas arrived. And the, the Baptists operated largely in the eastern end of the country and the Grace Brethren on the western end of the country, but because they were both working in Sango territory, they shared an interest in getting the scripture in, into sango so that first committee well i think it's fair to say the leadership was largely vested in baptism missions missionaries the role of getting the scripture into the sango language was shared with with others uh it took until 1935 so from 1920 until 1935 for that translation effort to become a sort of a formal effort and uh, the the goal was to complete the bible in sango which didn't happen for 31 years 1966 a sango bible was completed in its first edition and that was somewhat common in those days for it to take 25 to 30 years to do a complete translation so it wasn't out of the ordinary but from 1935 forward translating the scripture into the Heart's language of the host people of Baptist Missions Missionaries has been an ongoing, unbroken effort. I I think it's understood, or it should be understood, that preaching God's word in the heart's language of host cultures has accelerated the propagation of the gospel and the training of national church leaders in a manner beyond anything else that we've probably ever done. I have a little illustration from our experience out at First Baptist Deliria, where uh, a lady who is a member of the church came here as a, a university student from Romania. She was led to Christ by folks who couldn't speak Romanian; they spoke English, and so she was led to Christ with the use of the English Bible. And then she was discipled by friends who discipled her from the English Bible, and years passed until she had an opportunity to go with a team from our church back to her own homeland, Romania. When she returned, I was so impressed with the way she spoke about what God did in her own heart when for the first time in her life, she heard the scripture being communicated in her heart's language. Her entire experience had been in English, which of course was understandable enough for her to make a profession of faith and grow in her relationship with the Lord to a place of, of genuine, fruitful service. But to her own surprise, when she heard the word of God for the first time in her heart's language, she said, it penetrated my heart and mind in a way that not only was a surprise, but it was such a blessing to her to realize that God was speaking to her in her in her own heart's language. Mm. That's been the experience. And I've had the privilege of being associated not only with with the the work that has gone on with Sango, but it was 1981 that our division known as Bibles International was brought into existence. And the founder is referred to as Paul Luce. He actually conspired with one of his colleagues from India. He and Jim Garlow had served together in Northeast India, where they had a burden for the fact that they, they worked among multiple language groups, that had none of the scripture in their own language. They came off of the field burdened for that need, realizing that what had been their experience in India certainly would be multiplied numerous times around the world. And the two of them together prayed that God would do something about it, and God did something about it by moving in Paul's heart. He and Janela, his wife, uh, accepted the role a founder for Bibles International under the influence or under the guidance of Dr. Alan Lewis, who was president at the time. That was 1981. My link to that was that our church was closely associated with Jim Garlow. He'd been a college classmate of one of my dearest pastor friends in that area. We had a local fellowship. Pastor Vic Decker had been a roommate with Jim Garlow in college spoke to the end of his life about the influence that Jim Garlow had, had on his life. And he introduced me to Jim. We, we, as a church hosted Jim and Joyce virtually every year for several years to come and minister to us. He was an inspiration to us as it related to missions. And then as the plans developed for Bibles international, Jim introduced us to Paul verse Luce. Paul then became an annual preacher in our pulpit. And in fact, a. A guest in our home. So you and your siblings, your brother and your sister, were all rocked by Paul versus Luce when you were barely infants. Paul, in his role as perennial preacher for us, was also a, he was a help and encouragement to me as a young pastor. But he inspired our church for this business of Bible translation. And the church participated in the first fundraising effort for Bibles International. It was an effort where they used what they called Bible banks. They were just tiny plastic replicas of Bibles with a coin slot in the top. And I don't remember anymore how many of our families, uh, probably upwards to 100 of our our families, took those Bible banks home with them. And over a period of months, it might have been the better part of a year, We collected coins, and I don't remember anymore how much the Lord provided through us, but I do know it was the very first effort to to raise funds for the publishing and distribution of Scripture around the world. So from the very earliest, I've had the privilege of being associated with Bibles International. It today is an organization that easily compares with other organizations who Um, operate independently. And in the case of Bibles International, they're a part of Baptist men missions. They're a division within the mission, but they easily would compare with other efforts, similar efforts that operate as independent entities. But out of those early days of concern for translating the scripture, it's, I think it's significant that in the same year that the first formal Bible translation was undertaken, which was 1935, barely 15 years into the mission's existence. In that same year, also, the beginning of the first formal theological training program in the mission happened to be on the same field. I don't think that's too hard to understand. And some of the same folks that were so passionate about Bible translation were equally passionate about theological training And so on Subute Hill in Central African Republic, under the influence of Ferd Rosenau, who had served on that first translation committee as well, there was begun what has become the Subute Baptist Bible Institute. This, This, too, is logical in that missionaries understand that the the Great Commission cannot be reduced to one single element. It's not simply evangelism. That's the way it's often portrayed. Making disciples, however, is not the single or total essence of the Great Commission. The Great Commission has three elements. It's making disciples of all nations, then baptizing them, which is an identification with Christ and a declaration of death to sin and new life in Christ. It's also a, it's an invitation to be held accountable for that profession of faith. This is a bit of an aside. But we've come here in the West to a place where baptism is often withheld from those who make profession of faith until they have demonstrated faithfulness or obedience. I think the Great Commission has the order established for us, the first Matter of obedience for every new Christian is baptism, right? right? And it seems to me that the lesson of obedience to the Lord's commands would best be learned if the first command yeah. were obeyed yeah. soon after profession of faith, instead of waiting years, which often is the case. And I think, uh, well, I know that in some cases it's actually encouraged by some churches that yeah, right, professions of faith follow. Be followed by years of demonstrated faithfulness before baptism. I don't be pursued.
0: I don't remember you ever specifically teaching me that lesson, but in my pastorate, i I undertook an understanding of baptism to that to that degree that I often communicated with new believers that the effort to to learn to obey everything that Christ has commanded would, in fact, be impeded if they refused to honor. First point of instruction: Yeah, amen. To be baptized,
1: which is where I'm going with this, and that's the third element of the Great Commission. And that is uh, teaching them to observe. So you make disciples, you baptize them, and then you teach them to observe all things whatsoever the Lord has commanded. That's the Great Commission, and I'm guilty uh, in the early days of of my own ministry. I misquoted that passage. I for a long time, the way I referred to the Great Commission was. Teach them to obey all things, whatever whatever the Lord has commanded. It's teach them to observe all things. It's not just the conveying of information. It's it's the process of what we today would refer to as discipling. Bringing a person not merely to an understanding of the information contained in the word, but bringing them to a place of assimilating those truths into their own life so that it fashions the way they live and serve. And so I say again: missionaries understand that the the Great Commission can't be reduced to one single element. It's all three: it's making disciples, baptizing them. By the way, there are still parts of the world where, walking an aisle, kneeling at an altar, praying a prayer, whatever form public profession of faith might take, that does not hold the same credence as baptism. There are some places in the world where you're entitled to do all of those things, but once you're baptized. You are considered a Christian, a legitimate Christian to such a degree that there are still places in the world that once baptism takes place, families will disavow any tie to you. There there will be, in effect, a funeral held for you so that identity with Christ in many places of the world to this day, as it was in the New Testament, was associated peculiarly to baptism then teaching them to observe all things. So having the word of God in the heart's language has been understood by missionaries as being critical to that third element of the Great Commission. So I think it would follow that in the same year that the first formal Bible translation effort was undertaken, in that very year, the first formal theological training effort was undertaken. As I've said, it was in Subute, what was then French Equatorial Africa. Ferd Rosenau involved, then his son Eugene, then his son Vernon. And when Vernon came to the administration, which ultimately led to his serving as president, when Vernon came to the administration, he said to me, one of the things that allows me release from a ministry that my family's been involved in now for, at that time it was 79 years, is that God has raised up a national leader who not only is capable of leading the Bible Institute, but he is, in fact, fully qualified to do everything that I've done and more. It was Vernon's delight to see in the years following his departure from Subute and the undertaking of the role of director of the Subute Baptist Bible Institute by Dr. Rene Malipu, it is true that the program advanced to a place where the degrees granted are recognized by the government. There's even there are even um, postgraduate programs available. Dr. Malipu himself did his Bible Institute study there at Sabute, did it in Sango, then went to a brethren seminary up in the northwest part of the country and did his master's degree in French. And then over a period of six years, visited the United States frequently enough to complete a doctorate in English. I had the privilege of of retrieving him from the airport when he first arrived here in Cleveland, taking him to the Rosenau home. They were traveling and returning home that evening. And Dr. Malipu arrived before the Rosenau's did. And so it was, it was my privilege to care for him until he could be handed off to their care. But he spoke no English. I spoke no French or Songo. We communicated in that first visit through impromptu sign language frankly. 6 years later he wrote his doctoral dissertation in English. He is not only a brilliant man, he is a he is a genuinely godly man. And I counted it a privilege to number him among my friends, but he today is is providing incentive for the continued growth of theological education in Central Africa, but the fact is that that effort has been duplicated on virtually every field yeah. under the banner of Baptist Men Missions. Hundred and two years when I came to the mission in nineteen eighty seven, Polly Strong, who had edited the history of the mission up to that point, indicated that in the late eighties there were forty formal training institutions on thirty-nine fields. When I left the administration almost seven years ago, we had 55 institutions, formal theological training institutions, in about as many countries. Now, you shouldn't conclude from that that we have a program up and running in every country because some countries, like Brazil, for instance, had multiple locations where they had formal training programs. So they had one in Curitiba down in the south. They had one up in the northeast, the, uh, the Cariri Valley in a place called Kratu, which, by the way, has a campus today that would be the envy of many Bible colleges here in the United States. then they also have a training program out on the Amazon in a place called Belang. So some fields had multiple training institutions, Mm -hmm. and as I've already indicated, many of them had beautiful, very, very workable facilities. Some of them have been small enough. I spoke years ago in Bill and Nan Mosier's home in Great Britain. As they had one student who was completing their Bible Institute program, Nan was monitoring or auditing the courses so that he would have, their student would have a classmate. So it was formal theological instruction where the various missionaries on the field collaborated to provide the instruction. And at the time I was there, they had one student, but they were were not going to suspend the program because their student body was small. It demonstrates the type of commitment and passion. And I would say this the influence of formal Bible training is probably second only to Bible translation in equipping national churches worldwide for faithful, enduring influence for Christ. And it certainly has been at the heart of the nationalization of the church, which means that we have set the stage, we've we facilitated. A change of role for our own missionaries on many of these fields, Central Africa, for instance. It it could be fifty years since the last missionary to Central Africa was engaged directly in church planning.
0: And that that period of time then has been a, a period of support role ministries that our missionaries have been Absolutely. conducting, including theological education. Absolutely.
1: Years ago, I was in a state fellowship of churches. Uh, preached for three days of conference, and they had done a wonderful job for those three days of promoting church planters, missionary church planters within their own state. I had commended them publicly for not only engaging in church planning, but also honoring those that were doing that difficult work within the confines of their own state. We got the last session of the conference, and we did a Q&A, which I used to refer to as my favorite contact sport. <laughs> and one of the pastors, the very first question was asked. He said, you've spoken of Central Africa, which was my habit. Truthfully, it's difficult to talk about the history of baptism and missions Yeah, missions right. and not in some way refer to Central Africa. But he said, you've, you've referred to Central Africa, and you've been there for all these years, why do you continue to ask us to support missionaries for a place where you've, you've been for all that time? I said, well, it's not my habit to answer questions with questions, but I think it might be appropriate given this question, and that is, why would you continue to support missionary church planning in your state? Have you not been here long enough that your work of missionary church planning is finished, that you're suggesting that we've been there long enough that we shouldn't have missionaries there anymore. The fact is that our missionaries are not doing today in the Central African, this was my response to his question, they're not doing today in the Central African Republic what they did in the earliest days, because many of those roles, the roles of leadership for a hospital, a publishing house, a network of Bible schools, which actually included pre-Bible schools, where students came and learned to read, among other things, before they advanced on to the Bible Institute in Subute. Those things in Central Africa are all under national leadership today. Our roles as missionaries have transitioned to a place where we're in support roles, collaborative roles. We're working side by side with national leadership, and we're continuing to fill spots. Today, there are in Central Africa at least two of the men associated with the Bible Institute that hold earned doctorates. In those days, we had no earned doctorates in that country among the missionaries. That's not true today. We have more than one that have served in that country now with earned doctorates. Subsequent to those days, we've had missionaries who have returned to the field with earned doctorates, but in those days, we had none. But our role has been support. And in fact, it's when you talk about Great Commission ministry, it'd be hard to imagine that we ever got that done. That we could announce now we have done all that God gave us to do in reaching anywhere, whether it's a state here in the United States or a country overseas to suggest that there's nothing more to be done under Great Commission mandate in that place it would be somewhat. Short-sighted, But in the case of lands like Central Africa, where there are so many capable and well-trained national leaders, it's natural that the missionary's role would transition. And so all of our folks there today are there in support roles. Yeah. And our numbers, of course, are much smaller today than they were back in the early days.
0: And long-term, a missionary's job is... is something that's being conducted with a view of working yourself out of the job. You, you're, if you're planting a church, you're looking for the replacement pastor so you can move on. If you're, if you're developing an educational program, you're looking for guys who can step into leadership and training responsibilities as you work yourself out of the job. So the consequence of being in a place for any length of time is going to be church planting presence marked by a strong, healthy network or fellowship of churches that begin to, in earnest, prepare young men for ministry by formalizing a training system that would allow them to return to these churches with well-trained, capable um, ministry tools. And so where we see that happening globally, it's almost always the consequence of of a length of time. My guess would be 50-plus years in most of the places where we have established training institutes that are under or nearing um national leadership turnover so
1: yeah not unlike church planting yeah where we expect to have a national rise to a place of of god ordained leadership that will take the place of that church planting missionary who is there first yes absolutely and so the training institutions likewise are they are moving towards indigenization not Perpetual dependence on American missionary presence, and I, but but not necessarily independence in the sense that there's nothing more for us to do. It's a it's an issue of interdependence, which I think is quite healthy and suited to the biblical model. Yeah, and in recent years we have had a a, a pretty
0: consistent growing uh, presence of both Bible translators and theological educators coming to BMM for, for new ministry or transitioning from one into the, one of those ministries. Um, Because that's, that's where the need resides in a lot of the fields where we continue to have a presence, theological training, Bible translation.
1: And it was all in the view of those earliest missionaries who understood the value of first getting the word into the heart's language and then getting the word into the hearts of those who spoke the language so that their lives would be transformed by the word. We've just recently come through our own annual family conference where we had almost 400 members of the mission family together at the church that hosted the organizational meeting of Baptist Missions. That's Elyria First Baptist Church. 1920, they provided the facility for representatives from five states to convene to consider what became a missionary effort under the title of the General Council of Cooperating Baptist Churches in North America Incorporated. It eventually became Baptist Admissions. So the family conference was just recently hosted at First Baptist Illyria, and our annual conference, which ran from Monday night through Thursday night, incorporated seven preaching sessions where the Word of God was handled with precision and integrity. And when we designed that annual conference years ago, we considered the fact that the thing that the missionaries do around the world, which is getting the Word of God into lives with the expectation that change will occur, positive change, that people will be led to Christ, discipled in the Word, trained to serve, in fact, enabled to lead their own national churches, that the very instrument that our missionaries use so ably is likewise the instrument that we should use to be a source of encouragement and help to them. So when they come together like we we did recently for a mission family conference with almost 400 members of the mission present, we lavish them with the word of God. And it is a reflection of the fact that from the very First days of the mission, the importance of the Word of God in lives that were being touched by missionary effort, the importance was sufficient to spend, in the case of the first translation, 30 years getting it done. And in the case of all of these years now in establishing theological education in so many places around the world, whatever effort, whatever expense, whatever it took, we had to, in fact, get the Word of God delivered. And in the case of translation and theological education, it has been a primary core element of what we do as baptism missions. Praise the Lord. Yeah, praise God.
0: Well, I appreciate you coming back in today, Dad. It's uh, been a joy. I hope this episode has been an encouragement to someone out there. We'd love to hear from you if that's the case. Send us a note at send938 at bmm.org. No matter what listening platform you're using today, be sure to leave us a five-star review. Help others find this and other episodes of the Send 938 podcast. We'll see you back here next time.